You are listening to RLA Radio. I am your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you're along with me today. Hey, joining me on today's program in segments two and three is Mr. Walter John Williams. Uh, John's website is shadowstats.com. And John is a consulting economist, and shadowstats.com is part of his work. And John tracks economic data the way the government used to track data as it relates to the money supply and the unemployment rate and the official inflation rate, John goes back and estimates what is the real inflation rate today if we measure it the way the government measured inflation pre-1980. And what's fascinating about what John does is that changing the way this data is reported has ripple effects for you and your nest egg. And I know you're going to enjoy my conversation with John, so stay tuned for that. You know, as I am recording the program this week, um, I'm recording it prior to the Federal Reserve meeting on July 31. Now I have gone on record, and I'll go on record here again, as predicting that the Fed will cut interest rates at least a quarter point, and a half a point would not be surprising. Now, there are many that share this view, and obviously it's a bit risky to go on the radio and make a prediction prior to an event occurring. However, I think that, as we'll talk about in this segment, that the die is cast. We're going to continue to see perpetually low interest rates and money creation around the world. Now, there are a lot of economists that share that view. One such economist is Narayana Kachalakota, I believe that's how it's pronounced, Mr. Kachalakota is a former president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis. He is now a professor of economics at the University of Rochester. And he went on record on the University of Rochester's website this past week and said the Fed will cut rates. The only question is how much. Uh, This from the website Kachalakota expects the 12 members of the Federal Open Market Committee to cut the rate by a quarter percentage point, a move he favors as a way to safeguard against possible risks to the economy. The committee sets monetary policy for the Federal Reserve System largely by adjusting the federal funds rate, which is the interest rate commercial banks charge each other for loans made overnight. Kotra said there may be additional rate cuts in the fall, but more significantly, he believes it will be three years or longer before the Fed even considers a rate increase. Now, I believe that a rate cut, as I've already said, is baked in. However, I would not agree with Professor Kachalakota's assessment that the Fed will look to raise interest rates in three years. I mean, all you have to do is look around at the current economic facts and circumstances, and you have to come to the conclusion that we are entering a time frame where the policymakers at the Fed will not be able to raise interest rates probably ever. Now, that's a big statement. However, one of the top economic advisors to the president said as much back in April in an interview with The Hill, Larry Kudlow, who you may recognize as a former television host, who is now the National Economic Council director, he pointed to the Fed chairman, Jerome Powell, walking back the central bank's predictions for multiple rate hikes this year. 
and said he agreed with Trump's frequent diatribes against raising interest rates, calling rate hikes unnecessary. He said this, this is a big quote. He said, I don't think rates will rise again in the foreseeable future, maybe never again in my lifetime, the 71-year-old Kudlow said. Now here is the simple math. The current official national debt of the United States is just over $22.5 trillion. Now that is just a crazy amount of debt in light of the fact that the economic output of the United States as measured by gross domestic product is just under $21.3 trillion. So our debt now exceeds our economic output. Now, the Congressional Budget Office projects that the cost of interest on the debt will increase from $389 billion this year to $914 billion in 2028. That's just nine years away. So not quite triple the amount of cost to service the interest on the debt, and that's just nine years away. Now, those interest payments are based on current costs to service the debt which is about 2.5% interest. Should interest rates double to an historically more normal rate of 5%, say, the cost of the debt would increase significantly. The cost to pay interest on the debt in 2028 at that rate could more than double, perhaps approaching $2 trillion per year. Now, it doesn't really matter how you look at things politically, whether you're in the center, you're to the right, you're to the left, those numbers, we can all agree, are unsustainable. Now, recognizing that these numbers are unsustainable, many formerly fringe but now mainstream politicians are embracing monetary theories like modern monetary theory, and I've talked about that on the program here before. And modern monetary theory is essentially a belief that the government just can't run out of money because they can create their own currency. They can just manufacture whatever currency they need. Now, forgive me if you believe in this theory, but anybody with half a brain knows this is lunacy. You can look at a lot of different places on the planet today and see just how crazy this belief really is. Venezuela is making headlines due to massive inflation due to their money printing, and Zimbabwe is once again suffering under triple-digit inflation. Now, many of you probably know the backstory when it comes to Zimbabwe, but in the first decade of this century, Zimbabwe re-denominated its currency three times, 2006, 2008, and 2009. In 2009, they actually started printing a $100 trillion Zimbabwean dollar bill. Finally, inflation got so out of control that they said, forget it, we're going to use U.S. dollars and euros. And when that happened and a more stable currency was used, deflation set in. See, when debt levels get too high to be sustained, the money supply contracts and the result is deflation. Now, deflation causes some ugly things to happen, economically speaking. Asset prices fall and unemployment goes up. Think the Great Depression if you want to think about an extreme episode of deflation historically. Now, Zimbabwe, in an attempt to combat deflation, decided to pretty much come up with its own currency again. And they now have something called the RTGS dollar, 
which is a digital currency, and that is now the official currency. And since that has happened, the annual inflation rate has risen from 97% in May to 175% annually in June. So the inflation rate has doubled in a month. They're right back to hyperinflation. So what's next there? Well, the new currency will fail. A different, more stable currency will be put in place, and deflation will once again set in. This is the pattern that has happened historically time and time again. Now, the only long-term viable solution is to suffer through deflation as debt is purged from the system. It's an ugly, painful process that no amount of money creation can solve. And unfortunately, when you look around at the debt levels that exist in the world, it's where the world is headed. So the Federal Reserve will have to keep interest rates abnormally low and at some point will likely have to resort to more money creation. The only other option is to suffer through the consequences of deflation presently. Now, if you're not prepared for this outcome, which is certain, but the when is not so certain, you need to position your assets and use a two-bucket approach. If you're not familiar with that approach, pick up a copy of the New Retirement Rules book on Amazon or visit retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. We've got several free resources there as well. I will be back after these words with my special guest, John Williams. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I am your host, Dennis Tubergen. I have the pleasure today of chatting with Walter J. John Williams. Uh, Mr. Williams is a consulting economist. He has worked with individuals as well as Fortune 500 companies during his career. He has provided testimony before Congress. And his newsletter, ShadowGovernmentStatistics.com, is a terrific read for anybody that wants to get the real economic data. You can learn more about at uh, the website, ShadowStats.com. The website, again, is ShadowStats.com. And, John, welcome to the program. Uh, thank you for having me, Dennis. Well, John, if you could just start by explaining to the listeners uh, the, the, the premise behind your newsletter, Shadow Government Statistics. Why did you start it? Well, I've been an economist, uh, active professional economist <clears throat> since uh, the early 1980s, and I did fairly standard economic forecasting. Well, actually, I had developed a unique set of econo econometric models that helped you forecast what was happening in the economy based on what had already happened, unlike some of these grand-scale models that uh, uh, are out there that uh, you want to forecast interest rates next year. You you first have to know where the rate of inflation is going to be, and if you know where the rate of inflation is going to be, you don't need the model to tell you where interest rates are going to be. So I did that for a while, and then uh, as we got into the early 80s, got into the 90s, uh, what I found was that the numbers were changing uh, due to changes in the government's uh, approach to, to reporting and modeling things. Um, for example, in, uh, in the rate of inflation, back in the 1980s, um, the government made a big change in the way they uh, estimated the, the cost of housing in the consumer price index. Uh, used to include a, uh, a cost of 
actually buying a house. That was part of the calculation. But because the, uh, uh, the, the housing inflation was so high, they decided to change the way they did that in order to lower the overall inflation rate and in doing so, reducing the amount of uh, cost of living adjustment payments that they had to make for Social Security uh, recipients and uh, federal pensioners. And, and what they did was they replaced the cost, the cost of buying a house with um, what they called homeowner's equivalent rent. And what that was is what is assuming that people owned a house, rented the house to themselves, and they'd calculate the uh, rate of inflation based on what the average homeowner would uh, raise the rent on himself uh, for each month, which is an absolute nonsense number, but it... Uh, it had the effect of knocking 1.4 percentage points off the annual inflation rate, and it did reduce the inflation adjustment for cost of living adjustments in Social Security. You get into the 1990s, uh, they made a number of changes there. Um, the biggest one uh, probably was with uh, uh, the, the, way me- the way they measured inflation um, in terms of uh, the basic definition, cost of living. Way it's been looked at for literally centuries. You have you have uh, indices that go back to the 1600s. It always measured the cost of living of maintaining a constant standard of living, um, and the way they do that is they they measure the cost of a fixed basket of goods. For real simplistic terms, let's say you look at a uh, cost of a pound of beef, a gallon of gas, a loaf of bread, and you price those items out in one year, and then you price them out the next year. And whatever the change in the cost was between last year and this year, that would be your rate of inflation. And if you wanted to maintain your standard of living, you'd hope that your income had at least risen by that, that amount, and then you could still buy the same amount of goods for the, the, the inflated value of the, of the money. Um, in the 90s, uh, Alan Greenspan, for example, and uh, they had a, uh, Michael Boskin's commission, you had Newt Gingrich arguing in, in front of Congress. Um, this is during the during the Clinton administration. We had all all parties involved in this. Um, they, uh, they what they wanted to do was get away from the fixed fixed uh, fixed cost of living, uh, but to move it to substitution. And the way um, uh, Greenspan put it was, well, um, you know, if the price of steak goes up, people are going to buy more chicken or hamburger. And if they do that, then um, uh, you know that's we're not getting an accurate cost of living. Well, in terms of what they're actually, it costs them. That may be one thing, but in terms of what you need to maintain the same standard of living, the same cost of living, uh, I, I don't find uh, buying uh, chicken instead of steak uh, maintaining a constant standard of living. Um, what they did was, is they changed the weightings to reflect the way people might actually buy things, but the effect was to reduce the actual cost of living, uh, the, the, the standard of living, uh, to, to the uh, people who were having their income adjusted um, for, for the inflation cost. And that, again, that was deliberate, aimed at reducing uh, things such as the cost of living adjustments on Social Security. So what I started to do was to publish numbers that um, estimated what the government's inflation number would be uh, if you if they hadn't uh, made those changes, backing out the changes that they made, and they published estimates of what the, how much the different estimates have uh, 
have knocked off the CPI, so I, I, I add them back in. They did uh, <clears throat> made changes with unemployment, um, and that's um, that goes back to the uh, days of uh, NAFTA. Um, in 1994, um, they overhauled the reporting of unemployment. Now, the, the headline number, the, the, the people who are, um, are unemployed, they've been working for a job, looking for a job in the last month, haven't been able to, uh, to, to find one, but they're actively looking. That's pretty much uh, reported the same way that it was. There were some changes that they made, but not, not particularly big. But they also then had a broader measure of unemployment, for what they call long-term discouraged uh, workers. These are people who uh, wanted to work, but they'd given up looking for work because there were no jobs to be had. And um, where they were counted as uh, uh, discouraged workers, uh, irrespective of the number of uh, months or period of time that they had, uh, uh, had been discouraged, uh, with the introduction of the the new series in 1994, anyone who is discouraged uh, a discouraged worker for more than a year was just dropped from the rolls, and uh, that made a big difference in the way the 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 uh, the, the longer term uh, unemployed were were viewed. Uh, to give you an, 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 uh, some rough estimates here, if the CPI, which is now running uh, uh, around uh, Two uh, percent year over year, maybe a little bit more than that. Uh, had they might not made the changes to the CPI, um, the year-to-year CPI would be uh, running up around nine percent. Uh, in terms of the unemployment rate, which is right now off a just off a 49-year low at uh, uh, 3.8 percent or so, um, that'd be up uh, closer to 22 percent. Had they not made the changes, and that's 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 in the uh, that, excuse me the 3.8, it'd still be about the 3.8, but the discouraged workers, the broader measure would be up around 22 uh, percent. That's up up around seven and a half percent now. So it's um, the, the effects, um, although uh, they may have had, they may have had some specific uh, design with the uh, cost of living to have financial benefit to the government, it also has had political benefit. A couple of reasons, which we'll get into. While the unemployment rate was purely for um, a political benefit at the time they were uh, uh, starting NAFTA, the effect of NAFTA and what they were fearing that this is the people in the government who changed the numbers was that you'd have a lot of people displaced by factories moving offshore, and if they were displaced, they'd become discouraged workers, and that'd show up in the broader measure. So they they changed the the definition of the broader unemployed so that it wouldn't reflect um, all the jobs that were lost. So, John, let me jump in, because going back to uh, a couple things you mentioned as to the changes that were made in the way the inflation rate was calculated, uh, you used two terms. You used the term substitution, in other words, uh, referencing uh, Alan Greenspan, if the price of steak goes up, people are going to buy chicken or burger. And the other thing you mentioned was weightings. Um, it seems to me that calculating substitution and weightings would be extremely arbitrary. So comment on that, and who gets to decide? Well, they use um, they have mathematical models that uh, estimate it. Uh, they have uh, 
I mean, when it's when it's fixed, that's that's straightforward. Uh, it's it's uh, it's done uh, it's done by uh, algorithms, and the they have another factor there uh, called hedonic quality adjustments, which is um, uh, it's all done by computer, and it's probably the most insidious one because. The average guy never never sees it. Um, for, for example, early real early example, um, the government uh, decided to mandate a uh, change in uh, a gasoline formulation that uh, boosted the the cost of gasoline by I think it was ten cents a gallon. And this is back in the days when ten cents a gallon was quite a bit. Um, the it made it made the air better, but the average guy, when he was going to fill up his gas tank to go to work, just saw that he was paying an extra ten cents a gallon, and uh, he wasn't thinking about the quality of the air. He's thinking, "My goodness, it's costing me uh, an extra ten cents a gallon to drive to work." That was that was the average person's uh, concern. But when the government uh, came out with their CPI, they didn't include the the, um, the the increase there because they considered that a um, a quality improvement. Um, and that was uh, so they they just they just backed that out. Um, it got a little crazier later on uh, because you'd have um, and indeed you have uh, some very uh, fine technological improvements that take place uh, take uh, a place in the uh, evolution of products like the computer. And um, you take a computer now with one five years ago, uh, its capability is uh, so much greater. You, you really can't compare them. But they 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 do in a way which I, I think is unfair. And I'll give you a specific example. Um, and I've been again doing this for a couple of years, so maybe this is five years ago. I bought a new computer. The last time I bought a computer was ten years before that. The the one I bought the uh, ten years before uh, cost me a thousand bucks. The one I bought ten years after cost me a thousand bucks. Now, from my standpoint, I'm, I'm not high tech. I just use a computer, a, a, a computer for uh, calculations, and it is effectively a, a word processor for my my newsletter. So I was satisfied that I hadn't seen any cost in, a cost increase in my, in my computer. But because of all the technological improvements, and there are people who use them, I I, I don't. But you take everything, I mean, movie capabilities, whatever. Uh, according to the government's estimate of how much they, uh, they de deflated the computer by, because of all the quality improvements, that computer I bought for a thousand bucks ten years after the one before, I should have uh, effectively cost me fifty dollars the way they measured inflation. And I can tell you, I sure uh, I didn't uh, I didn't shell out fifty bucks or what I thought was fifty bucks out of pocket. I shelled out a thousand bucks. So that it's um, there are computer adjustments there with the hedonic quality adjustments, um, and and uh, those are really the um, that's probably the dominant area now that affects uh, uh, the, the the quality uh, uh, factors, and there's no way that you can really make good common sense of it. Well, our guest today is John Williams. John uh, publishes the newsletter Shadow Government Statistics. You can learn more about his work by visiting the website shadowstats.com. The website again is shadowstats.com. 
And I'll continue my conversation with John Williams when RLA Radio returns. Stay with us. You are listening to RLA Radio. I am your host, Dennis Tubergen. Joining me today is Mr. John Williams. John is a respected economist. He has worked with a number of Fortune 500 companies. He has provided testimony before Congress. His newsletter is Shadow Government Statistics, and you can learn more at shadowstats.com. And, John, let's just talk a bit about... uh, one of the statistics you brought up in the last segment, and that is that if we use the 1980 base year and calculate inflation today using the methodology that was in place at that time, we would have closer to a 9% annual inflation rate. So what does that really mean as far as the health of the economy? What it means is that uh, what you see in the headline economic numbers like the gross domestic product, the GDP, uh, the growth there is overstated because the uh, the GDP is, uh, and most economic measures, when you hear them reported, uh, are adjusted for inflation. The uh, reason for that is that, uh, let's say you're a retailer, and uh, you look at your sales at the end of a year, and you find your sales are up 5%. Uh, there's a question there, did your sales really grow by 5%, or, or is a lot of that tied to inflation? And if inflation were up 5% in a year, and your sales were up 5%, then your physical volume was uh, probably about the same. That's the way they look at the, the GDP. They, they they take the effects of inflation out to see how much the real economy grew, and that's where they use that term real for real growth is, is adjusted for inflation. Um, the inflation numbers for the economy are different than you might use for your own personal use. Um, for, for example, you know, if you're, you're looking at uh, the purchasing power of your money. You want to have you want to have a uh, you want to ma- maintain a, a fixed uh, constant standard of living. Um, that's not to, you want to be able to continue to do that without having your uh, ability to, to buy things uh, impaired by inflation. In the real economy, that people do substitute uh, chicken for for hamburger. So when the, they measure the economy, it's you get a, the the overstatement there is an, an inflation is about two percentage points. And uh, the unfortunate thing is that's about the uh, level of uh, of nominal inflation that before you adjust for inflation in the GDP since the, since the Great Recession. So that you've really not seen much of anything of a recovery there. It's up a little bit, although the headline number, the headline GDP uh, has uh, not only uh, bounced off bottom and recovered to its pre-recession uh, high, it now is 25% above its, its last recession's peak. There are, however, uh, no numbers I've been able to find that have um, show a similar similar pattern of growth. Uh, you look at the inflation, the uh, excuse me, the, uh, the uh, employment numbers. You maybe have six uh, percent. Uh, you look at uh, uh, industrial production. You're maybe up three percent uh, in terms of expansion. This is beyond the prior prior recession's peak. Uh, yet, if you look at the uh, industrial production, which is one of the major sectors, if not the major sector of the economy, uh, its major component is manufacturing. And uh, manufacturing still has not recovered its pre-recession high. It's still down, uh, it's still about 4% shy of its 
of its recovery. You look at the housing market, at construction. Depending upon their measure, you're looking at series there that are somewhere between uh, 20% and uh, even in some cases up to 50% shy of recovering their, their, their pre-recession high. This is not a normal economic recovery. Uh, yet the GDP is just booming along there up 25%. And the reason you see that is partially due to the understatement of, of, of inflation. So that the what you what you're what you're seeing there is that with the understatement of inflation, they effectively can overstate the the, the headline growth, and the politicians like to play up play that up. Uh, you can what I have found over time, and there have been times when the the GDP has been, been manipulated uh, very very deliberately in order to help uh, a politician get reelected as president. I, I, I've been able to establish this without without question. Um, a couple of times. Guess what? The average guy doesn't buy it. If, if you're getting a phony number, um, the uh, Main Street USA won't, 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 generally will not vote for um, the, the uh, person you'd think would be behind that because Main Street USA is very practical. It votes how, how it's actually doing. If people are not making making the living or seeing the economic growth that uh, that's being advertised, they vote their own conditions, not what they hear out of Washington, D.C. most of the time. So that's why you occasionally have uh, upsets, like um, the uh, election of uh, Mr. Trump when that wasn't expected. The economy is not, not at all as uh, advertised. He seemed to recognize it, and he talked about it, but all the pollsters had him, had him losing. And, and what overthrew that was uh, the underlying reality of where Main Street USA, USA is. And, and guess what? It's not gotten much better. Um, we're not uh, we're not fully recovered. It's going to be very interesting to see how this upcoming election goes. But um, yeah, John. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. If if, if you're feeling that you're not you're not recognizing the economy, can't understand why the numbers are so strong. Uh, you're not alone. Yeah, and John, you mentioned the last segment too. Um, when you include the long-term discouraged workers and the unemployment number, if I'm not mistaken, you threw out a number of 22%. Can you expand on that? That strikes me as just a huge number. Well, what that is is the number of people, what's the difference between what used to be reported pre-NAFTA and then they redefined the series in 1994. Um, you have the headline number, which is the, the people actively out there looking for work and, and, can't, and can't find jobs. They've looked for work in the last month. That's running around 3.8% 3, 3 or so right now. Uh, then they have a broader measure, which includes people who are discouraged workers. These are people who haven't, uh, uh, are not, haven't looked for work in the last, uh, in the, in the last month uh, because there's no work to be had, but they want a job. Uh, and they've got a couple of other groups in there, but that's, that's up around 7.5%. But back before NAFTA, if you were a discouraged worker, um, you'd be a discouraged worker so long as you wanted a job and you, you weren't looking for work because there were no jobs to be had. Uh, that that measure would be up around 22% right now. The difference is today, if you're a discouraged worker for more than a year, you're no longer counted. And um, you can see this actually is confirmed in other numbers because they have measures of employment stress. This is the uh, well, the, the, the ratios that the, such as the uh, employment to population ratio, people who are employed to the population or, or the uh, 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 participation rate, which is the total number of uh, headline 
employed and unemployed as a percent of the population. And those numbers uh, historically are are very uh, very high when unemployment's very low. So where we've got effectively a near record low unemployment rate, those things should be booming through the roof. They're not. They're at levels that you normally see in the depths of a recession. And um, what's the difference? If you if you adjust the population for my numbers, you'll find that that explains why you're not getting uh, uh, the, the normal levels of uh, employment to population that you'd expect when the numbers are supposedly this strong. So, so John, as far as your, your forecast moving ahead uh, for, for the economy, um, are we approaching recession or maybe even in recession already in your view? We are in a recession as I'm, I'm viewing it, and this is a headline recession as the government would view it. You don't need you don't need to look at this net of inflation to see if you know we're getting getting funny numbers here. Even the, the headline numbers here are going to be turning down, as they did in uh, uh, 2000, uh, uh, 2008 and nine. This is um, the the problem here is the Fed uh, bailed out the system in uh, 2008, bailed out the banking system. And in doing so, really upended all normal economic relationships. They concentrated on saving the banks, not stimulating the domestic economy. And uh, now they've been trying to get out of the quantitative easing and get uh, interest rates back higher. But in doing so, they tightened up liquidity on the consumer. And guess who drives the economy? The consumer does. The consumer accounts for 75% of the GDP. And as the Fed's been tightening here, liquidity's been clamped down on the consumer. Consumer can't buy. And you're seeing all sorts of related things, including automobiles having trouble selling. That's the bulk of the economy. So as that starts falling off, everything else will follow behind it because the consumer maybe accounts for 20 or 75% of the economy, but the remaining 25% is driven off the factors that the consumers are driving firsthand. So that if you don't have the consumer, you're not going to have good, healthy growth. And uh, that's why the Fed tightening pushed us into a recession. And that's why they're scrambling now trying to figure to get out of how to get out of it. The problem is they're still living with a banking crisis uh, from 2007, 2008 that they never really took proper care of. And I don't know quite where it's going to go from here. I think we may end up with perpetual quantitative easing. It's not a happy circumstance. It's not good for the economy. Uh, never, never has been, but it'll eventually work out. Well, and uh, John, I was just going to go there. We've got time for just one more question here. If we go into perpetual QE, which seems to be the only possible uh, option here, what will that do to the actual inflation rate? Are we going to turn into Zimbabwe or Venezuela? Well, that, I, I, I think we're going to, and it's not just uh, what the Fed's doing here, because it's the it's it's really the federal government. If you look at the the problem is that the uh, government's been very generous over time in terms of what it's done uh, with Social Security and Medicare, uh, but it's never fully funded it. People have paid into it, but if you look at the government's financial statements, what you'll find is that if we want to have Social Security and Medicare solvent over time, so that everyone who's uh, been paying into the system now is going to get paid out what they think. Uh, the government need, needs, in terms of current cash, uh, about $80 trillion uh, to cover that, the future cost of that, this net, net present value. There's no way the government can get that. The system is long-term bankrupt. 
um, when the, uh, the U.S. bonds were downgraded in 2009 by Standard & Poor's. Uh, I'm not going to get into the details of that other than to say when Alan Greenspan heard that. And he was not Fed chairman then, but he was just commenting as an economist, former Fed chairman, very smart man. He said, you know, the chances of the U.S. defaulting on its debt are zero uh, because everything we owe is in dollars and we can always print the dollars. Well, that's exactly what gives you uh, hyperinflation. That's what you've seen in Venezuela. That's what you saw in, saw in Zimbabwe. That's what you saw in the Weimar Republic of Germany. Um, we have to bring the long-term fiscal picture, long-term government spending into balance. It means renegotiating uh, or restructuring things such as Medicare, Social Security. It means people are probably going to have to pay in more, take out less, something like that. But if that doesn't get balanced long-term, the, the, the U.S. dollar is uh, bankrupt and will just be... Uh, ongoingly debased or um, or at some point uh, they, they give up on some of the, some of the uh, expenditures. I, I can't tell you how it's going to go, but normally something like this will end up in a hyperinflation. Well, on that note, we are going to have to uh, leave it there. Our guest today has been John Williams. Uh, John's newsletter is Shadow Government Statistics, and his website is shadowstats.com. The website, again, is shadowstats.com. I'd encourage you to check it out. And, John, thanks so much for joining us today. Terrific interview. We'd love to have you back down the road. Thank you for having me, Dennis. We will be back after these words. I'm Dennis Tubergen. You are listening to Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio. And I want to extend another big thank you to my special guest today, John Williams. A very bright guy and very much enjoyed the conversation that we had. Hope you got something out of it. You know, in the past, I've had here on the program a guest by the name of Dr. Chris Martinson. Um, Dr. Martinson has a couple of really good books, the first being... Uh, a book called Crash Course, which uh, was written several years ago, but is still very relevant. And uh, I was visiting his website, and he had a piece that I thought was very interesting and very concisely stated some of the things that we've been talking about here on the program. Uh, he starts with a, an interesting analogy. He said in the movie Zoolander, Will Ferrell's character screams the line, I feel like I'm taking crazy pills because it seems nobody else sees what he does. Chris said, I have that feeling never, nearly every day now, and it's getting more frequent and intense. How come nobody sees what I do? And he gives several examples in his piece, which you can find at peakprosperity.com. However, I'm going to give you just a couple of them here. Financial bubbles happen. History is full of them, and interestingly, Bubbles seem really normal until they burst. Then everyone looks back and wonders how they could ever be so stupid. Chris asks in his piece, how, many, how come so many people have completely forgotten the painful lesson of not one, but two recent bubbles? He points out the bursting of the dot-com bubble in 2000, where he said eyeballs were favored for a time over earnings, but then investors eventually woke up to the fact that all of their rationalizations for the sky-high valuations of profitless companies 
were actually ridiculous. Well, he said, okay, fine, lesson learned. Earnings are actually important, but here we go again. We're in that same situation. We're a lot like we were back in 1999. In fact, presently speaking, 80% of all initial public offerings, 80% of all stocks that go public for the first time have negative earnings. This was the case back in 2000. Now, in my book, The IRA Transformation Plan, I reference that the herd is often wrong, and this is especially true in bubbles, and I gave the example of a company called Pets.com, and some of you may remember, if you're old enough, the company aired a TV commercial during the Super Bowl of a talking sock sock dog. It was a sock that kind of looked like a dog, and... Uh, the commercial actually tried to convince pet owners to buy their pet supplies online. Now, the company was founded in 1998. It went public in 2000. And that year, it took $300 million of investment capital in. So the company had not made a profit. They went public. They collected $300 million in investment capital. Here's how ridiculous the numbers were. During its first year, the company spent $12 million on advertising to generate sales of $619,000. Now, obviously, that's crazy. Who would invest in a company that spent $19 in advertising to get $1 in sales? Looking back at that, we say that is crazy. But remember, a fundamental truth about bubbles is that they seem normal until they burst. And then when they burst, you look back and say, how could we ever have done that? Now, fast forward to today, about 20 years later, Uber and Lyft are both publicly traded companies. Now, both companies are unprofitable. And they're not just slightly unprofitable, they're wildly unprofitable. The more revenue they generate, the more losses they add to the books. So, Can this end differently than Pets.com? The answer is, in my view, absolutely not. The second thing that Chris points out, the second crazy pill, if you will, to use that analogy, he said the world now has a whopping $13.7 trillion in negative yielding bonds. Now that's record high bond prices, so you've got negative earning IPOs, and negative earning bonds existing at the same time. Typically, historically speaking, when investors are cautious, they move money out of stocks and into bonds. And when they're more aggressive, they do just the opposite. But that's not what is happening now. Money is flooding into both stocks and bonds. And as Chris points out, it's concurrently a risk-on and risk-off environment, which means It's actually neither. It is a bubble. Now, if you take what happened to Swiss government bonds recently, Reuters reported on July 25 that Swiss 50-year borrowing costs fell below 0% for the first time since August of 2016. Switzerland's entire government bond market now trades with negative yields, which means that If you loan the Swiss government money to operate over any time frame, 
you're going to get back less than you loaned them. In the case of a 50-year bond, you'd pay $1,000 today for having the pleasure of the Swiss government promising to pay you back $993 in the year 2069. Bottom line is, this cannot continue. That's what we have been talking about here on RLA Radio, and that's why we make several resources available to you. We are currently working on an updated edition of the IRA Transformation Plan in light of the SECURE Act that is likely going to become law. And the new Retirement Rules book is available, third edition, on Amazon. I'd encourage you to go pick it up. There's a Kindle version also that's available there. And I'd also encourage you to visit the website, retirementlifestyleadvocates.com, where you can get some information about some of our retirement maximization and asset protection workshops. Uh, They are listed at retirementlifestyleadvocates.com, as well as other resources. I would encourage you to go there and check that out as well. On next week's program, I will be joined by Mr. Jay Taylor. Jay is a past guest on the program. We'll talk to him about gold and gold mining stocks, so you'll want to tune in for that as well. That's all the time I have for this week. Hope you got something you can use. I'll be back again next week.